Chapter 10 Miracles Abound It was a day almost like any other, and I had forgotten to eat when I hopped on the U2 to head home. I had a half a beer after school, which may not have improved the situation. For reasons unknown, a confluence of events came together to create what happened next. I was still on the U2 approaching Kalbach when I noticed I was feeling hot and a little dizzy. I felt that sensation prior to a loss in consciousness as my vision began to dim. I could feel the bodies around me pressing in, nearly stifling to me because of the high traffic time of day. I closed my eyes, then carefully opened them and could see nothing as I experienced a vision blackout. I told myself to remain calm and thought that if I could just get off the Strassenbahn and get some air, that I would feel better. It was a good plan in theory. The execution of the plan was a bit faulty, though not lacking in great effort. I thought that I could feel my way to the door along the handbars and make it off at the next stop, which was Kalbach. Because I was seated right next to the double doors, I thought that it would be easy, but it was not in the least. I gripped the bars tightly, pulled myself up, purse secured across my body, and felt my way around the plexiglass. As the doors swished open, there was a sense of relief as I lost consciousness holding the bar and tumbled out onto the platform. This was bad. This was really bad. But I didn't have the awareness to think about that because I was unconscious, and it created a huge commotion among the commuters. I was surrounded by people trying to help me, and I could feel it slipping effervescently into and out of consciousness as though extended from the void. Arms were carefully placed under my own to lift me up and help me to stand as I tried desperately to come back into my body awareness. But I could not, and my knees gave way under me again, causing me to go down and back to black. It was at this point that I felt someone scoop me up and carry me over to the seating area. I could do nothing but lie like a child in his open arms, completely vulnerable. I came back to conscious awareness and found that I was placed carefully on the station seats, with a German nurse tending to me along with the man that had carried me. Not yet embarrassed, I opened my eyes and looked up to see the most unbelievable sight— the U2 was still sitting there because the driver was waiting to find out my status and it hadn't left the station. I was in a state of disbelief. This was unheard of for the German trains to wait on anything, much less anyone. You could set your watch by the running of the Strassenbahns because they were never late and here was one waiting for me. The German nurse spoke perfect English and asked me how I was feeling, saying, Amerikanisch? In German. Yeah, I replied. I said that I was feeling better as the mortification began to sink in when I was told that they had called an ambulance. Oh no! The first thing I did when I felt my sense of equilibrium come back was to thank them very profusely in German and tell them that I was completely fine and had forgotten to eat. I adamantly pleaded with them to please, in the name of heaven, tell the driver of the U-2 that I was okay so he could go to the next station, as close to on time as possible. 
the German nurse reassured me and said that he was only waiting because everyone on the Strasse was concerned for me and wanted to be sure that I was okay. The man who carried me went on his way as I thanked him again in German. Danke schön, vielen Dank. Bitte schön, he replied. The U2 pulled out and I felt more relieved as I sat with the German nurse who politely refused to leave me alone. I explained to her that I had forgotten to eat all day, which no doubt left me with low blood sugar and led to my loss of consciousness. It hadn't ever happened before, so I was floored by it, but resolved that it would not ever happen again for that reason. They wanted me to wait for the ambulance, but I politely insisted that I was expected to be home and I felt perfectly able to travel. The lovely German nurse stayed with me until the next U2 came through and I was safely on board. It was less crowded and I sat down in a state of utter disbelief that any of this had happened. I thanked God and pondered my day. I remembered walking down into Miquel Adikazali earlier with Tina when we ran into the older brother of a friend from middle school. I couldn't remember his name, but I recognized him, pale skin with brown hair. He told me that I looked so much better now because, in his words, you lost your baby fat. A sense of disgust came over me because he was chewing tobacco and spitting politely, impolitely away from me, telling me how much more appealing I was physically. Between his chews, he based his unwanted critique on the fact that I appeared slimmer than when we met. I truly did not care at all what he thought or if he found me attractive. Just who exactly did he think that he was to be judging me, based on my body size anyway? I gave him the most incredulous look while I thanked him with the sweetest, bewildered sarcasm for his completely undesired opinion. I thought that he was an idiot and avoided him in the future because of it. When he left, Tina spilled her views without hesitation. Man, what an asshole! Yeah, if I had wanted his opinion, I would have asked for it, I responded, wondering why anyone would make such brash comments as though somehow I needed his approval. We both heartily agreed before going our separate ways, though I felt a little sorry for him that he didn't realize how offensive his remarks sounded. Some girls may have gone home and starved themselves as a result of his careless words, not me. I realized that I appeared this way because there were times that I would skip a meal because I was out choosing to buy a pack of smokes instead. I vowed to myself to make a change so that I was eating enough because being the center of attention in Kalbach was the least desirable thing in the world to me, and I certainly did not need his or anyone else's approval. As the U2 pulled into Nira Eschbach, I thanked God that I made it there alive. After the familiar swishing of the doors, I stepped out onto the platform feeling tired, yet renewed. I walked home in the warm afternoon sun and realized something amazing. I felt safe. I felt safe for the very first time in Germany. The German people had come to my rescue when I needed it the most because in those moments, I literally couldn't help myself. And that was when Frankfurt became my adopted home away from home. What an amazing feeling it was to be not surrounded by strangers, but by potential heroes that when it came down to it, 
stopped everything for me. My heart was emblazoned by this, and I would not ever forget it or the immense gratitude it gave to me. In all of my searching for answers about the Second World War, I just couldn't ever understand how these people of this country had participated in such an atrocity. It made no sense. There was a nebulous feeling of desolation every day suspended in the air around me as the souls of those murdered cried out for justice. Their only crime was in being labeled as them instead of us. That is how genocide happens. I wept for each one. The horror of such a thing is personal to an empath. Casualties of the war for racial justice can be honored through the knowing and remembering of each individual by name with reverence for the life that was lost. Such was the case with Sophia Magdalena Scholl, a young anti-Nazi political activist, and Anne Frank, just a girl herself, when her entire existence was catapulted into chaos and ultimately destroyed by the words and deeds of hatred. Sophie gave her life to expose the crimes against humanity committed by her government. Anne was an unwilling casualty of hatred, prejudice, and fear, dictated by the false doctrine of entitled superiority. Each remained pure at heart and did not succumb to the savagery that presumed to enslave them. Sophia was executed in Munich at the age of 21. Anne was sent to the concentration camp of Auschwitz, then was later transferred to Bergen-Belsen, where she died of typhus at the age of 15. Anne's exquisite spirit remained free. Despite the poison of prejudice cast like a shadow upon her, she held on to her radiant inner light and the greatest gift of all, her humanity. An entire generation in Germany was alive during the abomination that included the murder of over 10 million people in the death camps. On this day, I realized that there had been a profound shift in the psyche of the German people. I had finally come to understand and reached the conclusion after long, deep contemplation that these people were not evil at all. This was the truth, even though they were led by someone who by every definition was what could only be described as evil. The epiphany came crashing in like a wave on the beach. These were normal people, many of whom were good, in an unspeakable situation that slowly led them to their lowest point collectively. Some of them hadn't known what was really happening. Those who did looked the other way, living in denial or afraid for their own lives. The worst of them were complicit in mass murder. The country had simply fallen prey to the machinations of a madman, spewing hate speech and propaganda that needed a scapegoat. The German people as a whole during the time of the war were not evil. No, they were betrayed by their own fear, overcome by mass manipulation, and that was their undoing. That night, I sat quietly in bed with one of my notebooks and began to write a song. It was a song of love, hope, and unity, inspired by everything that I had ever experienced in my life, viewed through the powerful lens of empathetic discernment. It was about the way that I came to understand what I could and essentially could not comprehend about the world. 
I wrote passionately about how people get so caught up in their own myopic little lives that they miss the bigger picture, which is love. And it is this love that is the most precious thing of all. The song boldly encouraged people to wake from their collective slumber of acquiescence and realize a singular truth, that we have only one world given to all of us, and there is only one life together to share all the love we have with each other, our sisters and our brothers, on planet Earth, so use it wisely. There is one love that encompasses all of us, holding each in a delicate web of life, one so stop worrying about petty little things and look around at those in need. If you want to change the world, then look at yourself and change how you interact with the world around you. Don't be afraid to change yourself first, to make your life and the world a better place. Instead of turning away from someone in need of assistance, turn into them and give it when you are able. Stop doing things that don't matter, like complaining about how you want it to be, or being mindlessly superficial and cruel to others. Cease war and killing, and give love where there is hatred and mistrust. Don't waste your time or worry your life away, because even after the darkest night, the sun will rise, as it always has, today and every day. You are the one that makes the difference in life, so give and be open to receive. Believe in yourself and the beauty of the world, because we are all part of humanity, each of us uniquely precious, living in an ocean of divine cultural diversity. No matter the color of our skin, we all bleed red. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. We must learn to live together as brothers, or perish together as fools. We are all one family, the global family of planet Earth, and each creature has its place in a rich tapestry of connectivity. We must take care of each other, especially protecting the children of the world. I had a difficult time giving it a title, swaying back and forth between calling it one or one world, ultimately scribbling out world to leave it as one. Then I changed my mind, experimenting with calling it Our World, before finally settling on The One Song. It perfectly expressed my deepest feelings of love for the world, though still a bit rough around the edges. It was an opus to hope and the inherent goodness present in both people and Mother Earth. I didn't want to share it with anyone because that part of me was silent on the surface, invisibly reaching out seeking and exhaling love with every breath. Inside, however, I was brimming with buoyancy, shyly emerging from the depths of my own heart like a butterfly. Because if you are going to dream up something for the world, make it the most exemplary imagining that you can, wishing for the utmost potential for good. And that is exactly what I did. That night, I slept and dreamt of people that I hadn't met yet in a spiraling rainbow of confusion, spending time with those that I didn't know in my waking life. The very next day in class, I noticed that there were too many loose-leaf poems, prose, and lyrics in my stack of notebooks. I had just been given a bright yellow notebook from the PX for school by my mother. It was made of sturdy cardstock, 
with three-pronged bindings for a report or a story, or in this case, a body of work. During class, I had some extra time on my hands because I had completed an assignment or just didn't care if it was done. So I gathered up all my loose-leaf work and began meticulously placing each page in the folder, one by one, until it was done. I liked the idea of having this work all in one place, with a sense of completion to it. It reminded me of when I had entered writing contests in school and had to turn in a finished product. For me, writing had always come naturally, and it was a form of self-expression that gave me peace to get it all out onto the blank page. Editing, however, was not my favorite thing to do. It was just one in several stacks of notebooks, all overflowing with my words and drawings. It seemed to me that it was somehow special, just because it was exceedingly bright yellow and cheerful. Much of my work was deeply steeped in sadness, expressing some of the most disturbing feelings that I had ever experienced. In this notebook, I placed a piece that described my conflicting feelings of anger and horror with the major, as well as abject confusion that human beings can behave that way towards each other. And then juxtaposed on the other side of it was my true heart shining through in the one song that said everything perfectly for me. The Voyage concert was two weeks away and I was counting the days as I began to plan what I was going to wear and how to style my hair. It was a good shoulder length and easy to style because my bangs were longer, they breezed back about mid-cheekbone, and the perm still gave it a lot of body, which I loved. I was excited and played around with different outfits to wear, but nothing really felt locked in or right. I wanted to look my best on that highly anticipated night. As the day of the show arrived, I took longer than usual to get ready, making sure that everything was perfect. It was a Tuesday, and I was meeting with Joshua, Tina, and several others to make our way to the venue by Uban. I skipped my last class and touched up my makeup so that it would be as perfect as I could get it. I also applied my favorite perfume, other than soap, so as to light up the senses. When I left for school, I walked down Ander Bornholstrasse with a real sense of purpose. This was it. During sixth period, I skipped out with Tina to the bathroom and silently lamented my outfit. I was wearing my killer boots, sweet little gold hoop earrings, and my favorite pair of tight jeans, but I wasn't liking my shirt at all. Tina was changing out of a beautiful East Indian brown print skirt into a pair of jeans for the show. I asked her if she was going to wear the skirt later. No, she replied. So I asked, can I borrow it and wear it like a top over my jeans and boots? Sure, she said. That would be different, but kind of cool. Sounds like me. Different, but kind of cool. I laughed at the irony. I can't wear my bra if I wear the skirt as a top, but I really want to wear it. She was right. It looked wicked cool, and you couldn't see the jeans because the skirt grazed the top of my boots. But I didn't mind at all. Tina thought it looked great. It was strapless like a tube top, but was patterned and textured, so you couldn't see through it or tell if I was wearing a bra or not. I debated knowing that I could go back to wearing my shirt later if I changed my mind, until Tina asked me if she could wear my shirt, forcing me to commit. 
It was too warm for a coat or sweater and would get steamy hot inside the Vestala with all those bodies pressed so close together. So I handed her my shirt with a smile and a sure. It looked great on her. However, it sealed my fashion fate for the night. As I waited for her to finish changing in the large, cold bathroom with fluorescent lighting bearing down, I decided to just let go and enjoy this night in a state of openness, wonder, and anticipation. And on this night, I would go with shoulders bared in the skirt-top dress, boots, and jeans with my tiny gold cross sparkling around my neck. The last bell rang, signifying that it was time to meet everyone in the parking lot smoking area, to head to Miquel Atikis Ali, and on to the venue. I was offered some cannabis, which I refused, because I wanted to be completely lucid and wide awake. This was my favorite band so far in the world, and I was ready to see the show with my whole heart overflowing. I vowed again silently to allow myself to completely let go and enjoy the show, not caring about what others might think about me. I had been through so much that it was about time that I had some serious fun. The trip to the venue was uneventful. When we arrived at the Festhalle, there were others holding our place in line, so we were at the very front, surrounded by people pushing in and felt like tightly packed sardines. That didn't last long, because when the doors opened, Joshua looked at me saying, Run! And we did. We ended up in the front row, right behind the barricade on stage right, an excellent place to see the show. Rockster, an amazing GI that we adopted into our group, was there, and all smiles with the glee of a child. Everyone loved him, including me, because of his gregarious nature, always ready and willing to have some fun. When he saw me, he said, Hey, Sherry, how's it going? Fan-fucking-tastic, Rockster, I responded, still a little nervous about what I was wearing. He smiled at me as if he might have known and said, You look great. Thanks. I smiled back with my eyes beaming. I made sure that the top was tied tightly and securely so there would be no slip-ups, saying with great enthusiasm, Rock and roll, baby!